Good morning and Christian greetings to all of you. And um, as Ivan has certainly mentioned and we're very aware of, you know, our church and community have been through a lot over the last several days, but also the last several weeks and months as well. It's not just, just now. And, you know, holidays are particularly difficult for those that have lost loved ones. And, you know, for for uh, Vi and Cora, I mean, literally, that has to be doubly hard, literally, to have that happening right over or right on Christmas. And um, just want to continue to pray for them. And while these events can and, and do cloud the festive spirit of the season, I'm just so thankful that there can be that underlying joy and peace that, that comes as well in the midst of the deep sorrow and grief that is also ongoing. And it really reminds me of the true meaning of Christmas, God's love for humanity in sending Jesus to earth. It reminds us that the eternal hope that we have, as believers have, that death is not an end, but it's a transition into the glories of eternity. It reminds us that God is in control. He has a plan even when it doesn't make sense to us presently. It reminds us of our own frailty and dependence on God because apart from God, we are just literally nothing. It's also a reminder that we need each other in this context, uh, in the context of the church body. Separation and loss are always painful. We all hurt, and there's needs, but then we all pitch in as well. And I think that we do well to keep that in perspective. I can say with pretty great confidence that I think we're all going to feel overwhelmed in the coming days. But let's not give up. Let's, let's do this together. As we weep, we support, we carry, we encourage, we're there for each other. I also have to say that it is just flat really good to be here this morning. It has been four weeks since I have been here um, with you all as a group. And that's way too long, um, especially since I wasn't even sick during any of this time. Uh, but there were other factors that kept me from being here, and it was difficult. It was very difficult. Uh, but I am very grateful for being here. <clears throat> I'm not going to ask for you to respond, but I wonder what you would say if somebody asked you what's the greatest miracle in history <clears throat> um, and why. Three that would rise to the top right away in my thinking is creation itself. Um, the resurrection of Jesus, obviously, is way up there. And then the one that kind of just kind of maybe for a little bit of a weird reason seems like one of the greatest miracles is the sun standing still. Literally, how is that possible? Did the earth stop rotating? Uh, what happened at that moment that the sun stood still? But I do believe that the greatest miracle is Jesus coming to earth. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. 
the phrase that Micah it goes right along with what I want to talk about um, this morning. And so the last several weeks I've been thinking about this meaning of Christmas. I read through the Gospels of Luke and John, just thinking about that. And then this, um, I also uh, read a book written in the early 300s by uh, Athanasius of Alexander. He wrote a book on, on the incarnation and the word of, God, of the word of God. And it was just fascinating to think about a believer from 1,700 years ago and what his thoughts were on the incarnation and the way that he explained it, how he talked about it as he contemplated it. And as I've read some of this and thought about it, I've just been awed beyond explanation of the miraculous wonder of the incarnation. The Son of God being born into this world to redeem humanity. I've entitled this morning's message, The Wonder of the Incarnation. And um, I deeply appreciate the scriptures that were read and I wondered where I should go given the developments of the last 36 hours, but this is where God had directed me, and I was like, you know, this is important for us to think about this, even in the context of all of everything else that's going on. To begin to grasp about the wonder of the incarnation, we have to start with God and the fact that God is. And you know, that's true. God is. And that was true before the creation of the world. And it will be true long after time as we know it ends. God is. He has always been and he will always be. Believers accept it and believe it. And yet, how much time do we actually spend contemplating that or even thinking about that or considering that? And when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, he described himself as I am that I am. Or some translation would say, I am who I am. And he was telling, said, go tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. Now, grammatically, these statements are improper and maybe even a bit disorienting and confusing to our human minds. I mean, it almost doesn't even make sense what is being said, yet the significance and the meaning behind those words tell us so much about God. And as far as I know, this is one of the only descriptions of, of characterizations that God gives about himself in a lot of ways. And it may be the most precise and maybe even the most complete and accurate description of God that we have. I am that I am. Over time, you know, many descriptors and attributes have been assigned to God appropriately, which helps us gain a fuller picture of who God is. But each one of those is only one additional facet of an infinite God. I mean, and so it's only a piece of it. And then we have the limitation that human language is rooted in finiteness of time and space and is really inadequate to even begin to express who God is. We're simply unable to identify all of his attributes because we can't even 
recognize them necessarily or, or put our finger on them because of our humanity. And there are several prominent attributes that we partially understand. You know, he is self-existent. He doesn't need anything apart from himself to exist, and he always has. He's eternal. There's no beginning or end. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do whatever he pleases. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. He is the creator. He's the sustainer. He's holy. He's just. He's love. I, these are just a few that I thought of, but these are all attributes of God. But again, each of these is only one facet of a even far, something far greater than what we can fully understand. God is also triune. There's three distinct persons, yet one God. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each one has a distinct role, yet we're talking about one God. And this triune God, the God who is, from eternity past to eternity future, he created our solar system and the entire universe from nothing. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Each of the first five days of creation, God declared it was good. On the sixth day of creation, this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, created man, stating, let us make man in our image. Verse 27 of Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God created man in the image of this triune God. Man has an eternal soul. We have a beginning, our birth, but, or conception. But after our life on this earth, we will walk into eternity either to be with God or separated from him. Adam and Eve and all humanity were given a free will. God enjoyed a personal and intimate relationship with mankind, with Adam and Eve, unlike the rest of creation. God created the universe and mankind for his pleasure and to enable his created humanity to voluntarily have a relationship with him. And God called this sixth day of creation very good, unlike the first five days. So the miraculous wonder of the incarnation is rooted in almighty and eternal God who then chose to become a part of his very creation. And that act is mind-boggling on so many levels, yet it reveals the incredible love that God has for humanity to do such a thing. And the incarnation was necessary because of the fall, because of sin. You know, after some time of living a life of perfection that God had designed, Adam and Eve sinned. Satan tempted them and caused them to question God's goodness 
and the limitations that man have in being created in the image of God. Even though we're an Im the image of God, we're not God. And, and so Satan caused some confusion there and tempted them to start questioning God. You want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3. I'm going to read the first six verses. Familiar incident there. But um, So now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but God said we shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Satan planted a lie and doubt about God with his question, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree? And the fact that he, he did totally rep, misrepresent what God had told them as well. Satan characterized it as if God said, don't eat of any tree. That's not what he said. There was only, at least, I think there was one forbidden tree, maybe two forbidden trees. I, I uh, did not go back and look at that. But, but I mean, there was only a very limited amount that was, but God characterized, uh, Satan characterized it as applying to everyone. And then Eve responded by affirming what God actually did say, but then also adding to it and saying about the restriction about touching. And then God, then Satan came back with that temptation that they weren't able to resist. He called God a liar and said, you won't really die. And went on to say that rather than dying, God lied to you about dying, but you're, you will actually become like God if you do this. And that lie is what permeates humanity to this day, that we can be like God. Not necessarily those terms, but rather the lie that we're self-sufficient and we don't need God. Atheism, modernism, postmodernism, they all perpetuate this lie. And then if you think about it, all other religions other than Christianity about finding ways to feel good about huma how humanity lives to appease this self-conceived deity, whether it's ourselves or something else. But it's about being like God. We're making those things up on our own and not coming to terms with what God actually said. So the fall revealed man's deep desire to become like God or even become God. The impossibility and the logic, lack of logic, seems to elude us. How can a created being think that they can become like their creator? Um, it, it's just beyond the realm of possibility. On the other hand, God being God and being the creator and the sustainer, he alone is capable of bridging that chasm that resulted because of sin. 
And being the creator of the universe, making the universe from nothing, the idea of the incarnation becomes possible. God can do anything that is consistent with his character. And while man attempted to become like God, God had another outrageous plan to redeem mankind and the sin-cursed creation. Almighty God sent his son to become part of the creation, of his creation, to come to planet Earth, which planet Earth is less than a speck in the universe, to become a human on planet Earth, and severely limit himself by the finiteness of time and space to live among the very people who rejected him as God. Turn with me to John chapter 1. I want to read the first 14 verses there. <clears throat> Just this thought that our create, the creator comes to creation and becomes a part of his creation is just amazing. I'm going to read this, and then um, I'm going to read it a second time. Well, I'll, I'll read it, and then I'll read it a second time, but I'll explain. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here we see the word, which is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. He became part of that, or the very creation, literally. Now, we understand what this is talking about, but the word, he uses the, the term, the word, and he uses the light, both reflecting, uh, referring to Jesus. And I'd like to just re read this again, substituting Jesus for the words that are used to, to name him. And just, it just helps bring some life or some meaning to this. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. And Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about Jesus, that all might believe through Jesus. He was not that light, but he came to bear witness about Jesus. Jesus 
which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through Jesus, yet the world did not know Jesus. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The idea of, of just hearing it that way helps me to just better understand what Jesus, who Jesus was before and what he did to come here. Now, I have a woefully inadequate illustration this morning that helps us maybe partially understand the wonder of the Incarnation. And many of you are familiar with Legos. Lego people were, you know, as a creation, if you will, of man, although not out of nothing. And they are not real people. They don't have life. But Jesus becoming human is more unthinkable than us becoming Lego people in order to save the Lego world. Think about it. Jesus becoming man is more remarkable than that. They don't, they're in, this would be inanimate. They don't have a soul. But Jesus gave up a lot more to become a man than what we would to become Legos. Not only is Jesus the creator of the universe as described in John 1, but he's also the sustainer. The universe would literally disintegrate if Jesus weren't holding it together. I'd like to turn for you to turn to Colossians 1 now. I'm going to read several verses there. Even as Jesus made his appearance on earth in human form as a baby, he was even then holding the universe together. He maintained his deity in all of this. Colossians 1, verse 13, and this is describing Jesus and his preeminence. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And again, talking about Jesus here, we could substitute him with Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. For he's the head of the body, the church, the beginning he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, become a minister. But this miracle, this wonder of Jesus' incarnation, coming to earth as a man, is just mind-boggling. And then the fullness of God. Everything of who God is, is embodied in Jesus Christ, is dwelling in the human body of Jesus Christ. He became man to rescue us, to redeem us, to restore that broken relationship with God. Adam learned in the Garden of Eden that man is incapable of becoming like God, because that's Satan's lie. But God is capable and was willing to become man to bridge that gap. And then he, so he came to earth in order to invite us, well, to pay for our sins, and then to invite us to have that eternal relationship with him. And then what's amazing is what man tried to achieve in the Garden of Eden of becoming like God, Jesus then invites and empowers us to be transformed into the image of Jesus, who is the fullness of God. He's inviting us, and, and him coming enables us to actually be like God. But it's not our efforts. It's God's initiative to make that happen because we could not do that. For me, the more I think about these things, the more, um, I don't know, incapable of even really processing it, it almost becomes. It just kind of blows you away. Now I want to read uh, the account from Matthew 1, um, verses 18 to 25, the birth of Jesus. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, but and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus came, became a human. He died, resurrected, and is sitting on the throne of glory today. But he not only came, he is with us. And this promise of Emmanuel, God with us. That was present 2,000 years ago when he came the first time, but it is just as true today. God is with us. Now, 
tomorrow, this week, whatever we face, God is with us. We have all faced difficult challenges in the past, and we're facing multiple hard things now. Sickness, death, loss, grief, separation, caring for others, and we're going to be facing more hard things in the future. But God is with us. Christians are not promised a life of ease. We do have the promise of God's presence and his sustaining grace. Not ease, but he is with us. We have Jesus dwelling in us, always present in our hearts, if we've surrendered our hearts to him. We have the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us moment by moment. Emmanuel, God with us. What a promise and what a perspective and what an amazing reality. God is with us. Almighty God, the creator of the entire universe, cares deeply about each and every one of us and is with us in everything that we face. In conclusion, God is. And God became man. Man tried to become like God and failed miserably. But to rescue us, God became man. God sent his son Jesus to become one of us. And God is with us. He cares. He's present. We're not alone. Came across a verse that never had, I had never noticed before as I was studying this. It's in 1 Timothy 3.16, and I'm not going to, this verse is a sermon in and of itself, but um, it says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. There's a colon, and then there's a list of things. He was manifested in the flesh. That's what we're talking about this morning. That's the mystery of godliness. But then it goes on. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. But it began with being uh, manifested in the flesh. What struck me as I was reading, as I was studying all of this and so forth, is that so often our focus is on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Rightfully so. That's, that's an important... But none of this would have been possible without the miracle and the wonder of the incarnation first. So don't let the wonder of the incarnation subside. I believe it's the greatest miracle in the history of the world. Meditate on it. Soak it in. Enjoy the beauty of it. We can't fully grasp it, but we can be awed by it. And that's what we should do. So let's bask in the beauty of this miraculous event in the midst of everything else that's going on right now. Let's stand together for benediction. Father, thank you so much 
for your incredible love for us and sending Jesus to become one of us in order to redeem us. We don't understand it. It's hard for us to even begin to comprehend the magnitude of that. But Lord, I pray that you would just uh, create in us an awe of what this is and what it means. And uh, I pray that as we live our lives, that we don't lose sight of that, that we remember, that we, um, we never lose sight of the fact that you gave up everything to come here and to redeem us and to make so that we can be transformed and spend eternity with you. Thank you for the hope and the wonder of eternal life with you. And uh, I just pray for your, your love, reminders of your grace and strength for us through the coming week. I pray for each and every person that's here, and even those that aren't able to be here this morning. I just ask that you would anoint us as a church body with your presence, with your love, with your strength um, for the days ahead. And again, just want to lift up the Peter Simon, the Byler families to you, and just pray that uh, you would uh, touch them in tangible ways, reminding them of your love uh, during this time of, of separation and loss. And yet we're so thankful for the hope that we have as well. Be with us as we go from here. And uh, just continue to remind us of your uh, great love and the miracle and the wonder of the Incarnation. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.